Well, let's turn back to Daniel and let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to us now. We pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. We ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, uh, there are certain dates in history, the great sweep of history that, that kind of seem to stand out. There are not, there is not going to be a test, don't worry. 1066, 1707, and 911, and the, the events that took place on each of those dates, they continue, don't they, to have relevance today. And if you're um, old enough, and it um, slightly terrifies me to realize that probably none of the students will be in this uh, category, you can probably uh, remember where you were when the planes crashed into the World Trade Center. You can remember the chaos and the carnage that followed, the ash, the clouds of smoke, the awful crashing sound when those towers fell. Well, as we come to God's word this evening, we're listening in as Daniel describes a a vision that he had. And that vision was about a series of overwhelming historical events. And like chapter 7, this vision, it leaves Daniel, it left him alarmed. Just look at verse uh, 27. Verse 27, Um, he hears from God, God explains that vision, and yet look at his reaction. Daniel is overcome, he's sick, he gets up again, but he's appalled by what he's seen. He still does not fully understand it. And uh, you and I, we've got one big advantage over Daniel tonight, and the events that he hears about the events he describes in this vision. They are all events that have already happened. This vision is different to chapter 7. In chapter 7, maybe you can remember, Daniel saw four beasts. He saw ten horns. He saw one little horn. And I said that the four beasts were four different empires whose um, characteristics would continue to be seen throughout human history. I said the ten horns symbolized something of that, and then that the final horn was ultimately a picture of the Antichrist. But chapter 8 is different. There are lots of there are animals mentioned here as well, just like chapter 7. There's a horn here too. But this is, what the, this is the key to it, I think. These events, while future for Daniel, they are past for us. Future for Daniel, past for us. And yet that doesn't make them irrelevant. Uh, my history teacher at school, the legendary Mr. Harrow, He used to have a poster on his wall that said this, those who ignore the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. And just like chapter 7, what we see in this chapter, well, it echoes down the ages. 
Now, I've got two points tonight, and what I'm going to do is something I don't normally do. I'm going to give you these two points in advance, okay? This is a tricky chapter, and maybe uh, having the two points in advance will help. And at the risk of sounding a bit like uh, Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, we're going to see a future that's past and a past that's present. A future that's past and a past that's present. Firstly, a future that's past. I think we can come to a chapter like this and we can feel very confused, can't we? What is going on here? It can feel a bit like a puzzle that we have to solve. But there's actually a a wonderful key to this chapter. It's hidden in plain sight. If you look at verse 20 to 23, you can see it. Daniel is actually told the identity of this ram with two horns and the goat that attacked it. He's also told of another ruler who'll arise, will come back to him later. Let's think about these first two animals, the ram, the goat, the ram. Daniel sees a vision. It's the third year of King Belshazzar. Uh, Maybe you can remember from chapter 5, he was the man who who suddenly saw the writing on the wall. He was the king who suddenly had a great fall. And maybe you can remember that he was replaced that very night by another. That man was Darius the Mede. And in the opening verses of this chapter, in the third year of Belshazzar, of Babylon, what Daniel sees is the incredible power of another empire. Before Belshazzar falls, he sees the, the Medes and the Persians. He sees them symbolized by this great ram. Now, uh, any animal with horns that is running is dangerous, is frightening, isn't it? And we see that here. Look at its dominance. Look at the points on the compass that it covers. It goes west, it goes north, it goes south. In other words, it comes from the east. No beast can stand before him, verse 4. No one can rescue from his power. And it's worth pointing out, one of the the commentators notes, that what we have in verse 4 is 200 years of history. 200 years of history, decade after decade after decade of one empire eating up all that is before it until another beast came, until the goat. Now, I know that um, goat can have other meeting, meanings, can't it? Uh, the greatest of all time, uh, Lionel Messi, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods. But this goat, this goat is a great empire. This goat is Greece. This goat is the great king of Greece. It is Alexander the Great. He comes from the West, verse 5, which fits with the geography. And what's described, it fits with the history as well. This is history in picture language. Look at the way he seems to, to fly across the land. No one can harm him. No one can touch him. 
And it's terrifying, isn't it? He runs at this ram, verse 6. He strikes it down, verse 7. Then this goat becomes exceedingly great. And Alexander the Great, he was one of the the greatest generals the world had ever seen. He's uh, reported to have cried when he realized there was no more worlds for him to conquer. But if you know anything about him, you probably know that his reign ended abruptly. He died at the age of, of age of 32. This rings true with verse 8. Maybe you can see what the text says. This goat becomes exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the horn is broken. When he was strong. And the historians tell us that what happened after his rule was the, the kind of thing that often happens after the death of a powerful ruler. Two of his sons took control, but they were replaced by four generals who divided up the kingdom into four realms. That makes sense of verse 8. But what about this little horn? Who does this little horn symbolize? It's different from the little horn in the previous chapter. And what I want uh, to show you is who this figure is. I mentioned uh, big dates earlier, years that stick in the memory. For the Jewish people, the year 168 BC, that was one of those years. 168 BC, this was the year a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, who who ruled in Syria, came and did his worst to the people of God. And the Seleucid Empire, the empire he ruled, was one of the four dynasties that, that developed after Alexander the Great. And Antiochus Epiphanes was a truly awful ruler. Maybe you can hear, maybe even in his name, a hint of how terrible he was. So you see, what is the epiphany? The epiphany is what Christians often refer to as the appearance of Jesus to the Magi, isn't it? It's a moment of great, stunning revelation. And we often say, don't we, I've had an epiphany. And that was the title that Antiochus gave himself. He was known as the illustrious God. He was also known as the madman. And he acted like a madman. In 168 BC, he attacked Jerusalem. He massacred the inhabitants. And in an act of sacrilege, he entered the Holy of Holies. He killed a pig on the altar. And I think this makes sense of verses 9 to 14. Look at those verses uh, with me. You see, look at the language in verse 9. He attacks the beautiful land. Most people think that is a reference to Palestine. In other words, the, the focus of his wrath is the promised land, is the people of God. Look at the picture language in verse 10 that that communicates his power. Stars are flung to the ground. 
And there are echoes there of um, Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon trying to raise his throne above the stars. Then we have a whole lot of temple language in verses 12 to 14. Daniel is told that when this individual comes, he will strike right at the heart of Israel's worship. The offerings will be taken away. The sanctuary will be overthrown. Truth will be thrown to the ground. And in verse 23 to 25, we have what someone has called a character sketch of this man. He will be a king of bold face. He will understand riddles. He'll be skilled with words. He'll be cunning. Without warning, he will come. He will destroy many. He'll rise up against the prince of princes. He will attack God himself. And yet, and yet, if you can, put one eye on the end of verse 14 and one I on the end of verse 25. Can you do that? And grasp what Daniel is being told here. Daniel is being told that when this man will come, the persecution, the opposition will be awful, but it will last for a limited time. This man's power will be broken, but not by human hand. Now, you have all done very well. I have given you a huge amount of history. Mr. Harrow would be very proud of me. What I want to do now is try to apply it. And we've seen a future that's past. But I think we also see here, we see a past that's present. Past that's present. What does this event, these, this series of events, how does it speak to us tonight as God's people? What on earth has this to do with us here at St. Peter's in the 21st century? Well, I think the first thing it teaches is God's control of history. And friends, that might seem like a really, uh, really obvious point for me to say, but it's so important. God is telling Daniel about events centuries before they happen. God is telling Daniel about the rise and fall of of different emperors and empires long time in advance. This is one of the ways, isn't it, that God is so different to us Um, You and I, we have absolutely no idea what's around the corner. We make plans, we've got hopes, we have dreams, but we can't control the future. But the God we meet in Scripture knows the end from the beginning. We belong to one who sees far, far ahead. He's sovereign over history. That means he's sovereign over your history. Am I quoted from Second Peter chapter 3 this morning? What do we read in that uh, chapter? With God, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. History is in God's hands. He holds it in his hands. And a few years ago, there was 
um, a lot of interest in uh, a theological movement called open theism. And uh, put simply, this was the idea that God was not really guiding history, but kind of responding to history. The, the future was uncertain. God was portrayed as reacting to events. Maybe we could even say controlled by events. But that is what we are like, isn't it? That is not orthodox Christianity. Friends, God is never surprised. God is never surprised by things that happen in our lives. That might be quite a difficult thing for some of us to hear tonight. But maybe just consider this question. Would it be better if God was? I think we need to answer that question very carefully, don't we? When we're we're with someone who's grieving, would you and I, would we want a universe where God was surprised at suffering? I don't think we would. No, God is working his purposes out. There is mystery in his providence. You and I don't always know why certain things have happened in our lives. We have to be careful when we read providence. And yet tonight, we, each one of us, we know, we know the God who has history in his hands. We know the one who knows all things. You see, as Nebuchadnezzar said earlier in this book, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Friends, God is in control of history. Now, that's a truth that you can tuck under your pillow tonight. That's something to hold on to when you're struggling. Something to come back to when life is overwhelming. But there's a second thing here. I wonder if, uh, as, you, as you think about the fact that uh, a future event is being promised here, can you see what is implied? What is implied is that God's people will one day be back in the promised land. Think where Daniel is when he's receiving this vision. He is in Babylon. Now, we can almost miss this. The the exile is going to end. That is what God is saying here. Destruction is going to come to the sanctuary in Jerusalem. But can you see the other side of that? Returning to the promised land, the exile ending, God's people being back where they belong, is not going to mean that everything will all be fine now. There will still be threats. There will still be sin. There will still be events like 168 BC. It's what we saw in the book of Malachi. After the exile, after God's people returned to the land, there were still problems. There was still a need for God's people to be renewed. There was still a need for a future Savior to come. And I think this makes sense of verse 17. Look down at that verse with me. Uh, Some of you may have spotted uh, the reference to the end. But what is that end? 
That end is not the end of time. That's how we uh, might naturally read it. I think we tend to be fascinated by end time theology. But that is to misread this passage. It is a reference to the end of the Old Testament. It is a pointer to the intertestamental period. It is a pointer to the blank page in the middle of your Bible. It's a pointer to the time when God's people will be waiting and longing and hoping, in the words of Malachi, for God himself to come to his temple. And you and I, we live in a very similar time to that. We are just like those people living after the exile, still waiting, still longing for our future, for our deliverance. We're waiting for a deliverance too. Someone has called this the time between. Because tonight, you and I, we are living in the overlap of the ages. Jesus has come. And yet we're still waiting for him, aren't we? We're waiting for the wonderful vision we saw this morning in Revelation 21, a new creation, promised land. And yet as we wait for it, I think there's a third thing we need to remember. We need to remember that human power is brutal but fragile. Brutal but fragile. You see, what have we got in this um, chapter? We've got an account, haven't we, of kingdoms um, rising, kingdoms falling, and um, rulers who, who come and go, rulers who look incredibly powerful and then have their reigns come to an end. I think um, recent events in Westminster, we've, it's kind of hammered home to us, hasn't it, that uh, political power is temporary power. And tonight, leaders like Alexander the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes, some of us might have not even heard of that second guy tonight, had we? Well, they find themselves in the dustbin of history. For a time, they overwhelm. For a time, they are in charge. They look like no one can stop them. And yet, who will have the final word in history? God will. Friends, imagine not knowing that. Imagine not knowing that. Imagine what it would be like to be terrified that the world is going to end because a man in Moscow might just lose the plot. Imagine thinking that China or any other great human power had ultimate control in this world. It doesn't. And yet you and I, we probably all know, we probably sometimes feel and fear that what God says in his world to, word to us tonight isn't quite true. Well, if we feel that way, hold on to this strange chapter. Have compassion on people who are walking through life, even maybe tonight, terrified. 
pray for opportunities to point them to Jesus, the King of Kings. And in the meantime, here's, I think, the fourth thing. Do what Daniel does. Do what Daniel does. Do you see how he responds to all of this in verse 27? I think there's one little phrase here that is really amazing. He's overcome. He's sick. He's had this incredible encounter with God, been told these awesome things. And then we read, then I rose and went about the king's business. Daniel hears about a terrifying clash of empires. He hears about a time when, in the future, when God's people will come under an awful attack. He's told there will be a a restoration. And even though he's frightened, even though he's appalled by all of this, even though he doesn't really understand it, he simply keeps going. He simply carries on. He trusts and obeys. I think it's even more striking when we remember who the king was, who Belshazzar was, what he was like. He was just like the men described in this chapter. And yet, Daniel continues to serve God faithfully, simply, humbly, in this terribly hostile society. Here is just quiet, committed faithfulness, serving the king, but remembering there's another king. And friends, you and I, we're called to this same kind of attitude tonight. We're called to keep on going. We're called to do the tasks in front of us, and however ordinary they seem. And we're called to do all of that, even as we know that one day Jesus will return. I mentioned 2 Peter earlier. Listen to 1 Peter. Listen to chapter 2. Peter writes, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that's those who are not Christians, keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Listen to chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. So how are we to live, Peter? Are we to run around like headless chickens? Are we to live absolutely terrified? No, listen to what he says next. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of of sins. This is how to live in light of the end of time. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Use the gifts God has given you to serve your brothers and sisters. It's the normal Christian life as we wait for Jesus' return. It is all so ordinary, and yet it's extraordinary, isn't it? all so ordinary, and yet such an honor. Such an honor to serve the King of Kings. Well, let's pray together. Let's pray.